Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Following his unexpected victory at the Battle of Culloden, Prince Charles Edward Stuart became King of the Gales and split the Highlands and Islands of Scotland from the rest of Britain. Upon his death, the Free Republic of the Gales was declared. Since then, the Gallic Republic has maintained its own culture and language, ploughing its idiosyncratic furrow to the present day, a constant irritant to its larger and more powerful neighbour. 2. The Shore The pursuit seemed to have been called off. The patrol boat was moving slowly back towards the Antrim coast, and the trailing smoke suggested that Malcolm had done much more damage than was immediately evident. No more drones were launched, and Gillespie thanked his lucky stars that Breach had been so quick and accurate with her throw. With no more need for stealth, Gillespie grabbed a rope and hauled himself up to look around. The first blow caught him by surprise. What the fuck did you think you were doing? shouted Jamie as he rained down punches. You stupid cunt standing up like that. You fucking showed them where we were. If you kept your mouth shut, Malcolm would still be alive. Gillespie's ears rang. It was the click of the safety catch that stopped the blows. Kirsty pointed the gun right in Jamie's face. Sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up, she shouted, her authority cowing him instantly. If I hear another fucking word, I promise I'll put a bullet in you. Do you understand me? This is your last warning. Jamie nodded sullenly. Kirsty slowly lowered and then holstered her pistol, but the tension between them remained. It was Nin that spoke, trying to answer the question on everyone's lips. I don't think that boat heard Gillespie, even if what he did was fucking stupid. In any case, they were going to find us. If we hadn't got them first, then we'd be the ones at the bottom now. The crew nodded in agreement, all except Jamie, who turned away. Gillespie felt sick. He turned to look at Breed, who seemed like she was about to say something, but instead she gazed glassily at Malcolm's carcass hanging over the bow, a bloody pulp where his head had once been. His right hand still clutching the handle of the machine gun and his left hand wrapped around the grab rope. Brain and blood were spattered liberally over the bow and there was now a deep red pool sloshing back and forth in the bilge. Jesus, said the rat trying to pick his feet up and away from the bloody tide at the bottom of the boat. Malcolm's making a bit of a mess here. We're going to have to clean this up before the crossing, if we're to have any chance of getting over. There is no way we can take his body back with us. Just you leave him where he is, growled Jamie, or you'll join him. Breach turned to look at Malcolm's remains, her face pale, her cheeks running with tears. She reached out and ran her thin fingers over the back of Malcolm's thick and powerful hand. Choking back the waver in her voice, she turned to Kirsty. Much though I regret it, I think the rat has a point. We will never get over the crossing with a dead body in the boat. It'll be hard enough as it is. Fiona and Mara, Mara will understand. You know they will. Kirsty said nothing, instead fixing her gaze on the shore and watching the distant surf pound on the rocks, throwing spumes of water high into the air. Finally, she turned back. Breed's right. We can't pass the crossing with the body in the boat. I don't see that we have a choice unless someone else has a bright idea. She scanned the boat, daring the crew to respond. No answer came, but Jamie shook his head disconsolately. Fine, rat, since it was your bright idea, you can prepare the body. 
and for God's sake, make sure it can't float or be found. The rat nodded and produced a wicked-looking knife from his armpit. He worked swiftly in the bottom of the boat, cutting the webbing off Malcolm's body before wrestling the jacket off and handing it to Gillespie. You better take that, at least till we're past the crossing. Six went out, fewer questions if six come back. Gillespie took the sodden black jacket. The strips of familiar tartan down the inner arms now seemed a richer red. The smell of blood mixed with salt water caught in his nostrils. A wave of nausea swept over him. Was that seawater or blood running from the hem? He rubbed it in his fingers. Was, he, was it really his fault this man was dead? Had the patrol boat heard him? As if he could have escaped here in the middle of the Irish Sea with a bunch of heavily armed gales? What an idiot. He held the jacket close, tears running down his face. In the bow, the rat turned to the body and cut off the right-hand sleeve of the shirt. Then, gritting his teeth, he used his knife to cut the deep blue tattoo of a castle tower out of the flesh of Malcolm's upper arm, the sharp blade working away under the skin until it finally became free. Without a pause, the rat threw the tattered patch of flesh into the water. He then manhandled the body onto the gunwale and drew his knife firmly and deeply across Malcolm's belly. Turning his head away from the foul smell, the rat then pulled out the guts like strings of sausages and threw them into the wake. He paused, uttering a few words under his breath, before taking a box of ammunition, which he inserted into the cavity. Then, having bound the body with rope and without a further word, he heaved it over the side. They watched it sink into the depths. The whole process had taken less than ten minutes, but Gillespie felt he'd been watching for hours. He was numb, and not just because of the cold. How could these people be so callous, so cold-hearted? He knew that life was cheap in the Republic. He'd heard the stories. But the dispassionate growling of Malcolm shook him to the core. He wrapped the jacket tight around him, rubbing his hands against his side, trying to inject some warmth. Meanwhile, Jamie and the rat were splashing seawater over the charnel house at the bow. With the immediate threat from the patrol boat over, Nin came off the throttle. They were now just a mile or so off the Republic shore, tracking the coast north. It took Gillespie a few minutes to figure out that the shore was on their starboard, not on their port bow. Where are we going, he said. Surely we should be going around the mull and up Lock Fine. Well, if you were going for a wee pleasure cruise, maybe that's the way you would go. But it's too exposed to Kingdom vessels coming up from Gurok and Glasgow. Having dodged one, I'm not keen to tangle with another. But this will bring us miles away from where we need to be. Surely it's even more dangerous going up through the islands and across the hills, spluttered Gillespie. Aye, right enough. If that's what we were going to do, we'd need to be braver or better armed than we are. No, we're going to take the crossing place at Tarbot. That will hopefully save us from both the Kingdom's Navy and from the hospitality of the Lamentation. Although, to be fair, we'll still need a little luck and the following wind to dodge that pleasure. The moor of the unknown gnawed at Gillespie's gut as the Republic came ever closer. He stared out at the coast. It was low-lying here, with long stretches of pale sand rising through green fields to a moorland backbone that ran as far as the eye could see. This was the more accessible flank of the Republic, the long finger of Kintyre that dipped far to the south of the country, suspended like a probe into the Irish Sea. With its relatively rich farmland and flat topography, it was known for being more accessible and open. 
But this accessibility fell away the further north he went and as the landscape changed. The Republic was famously mountainous and jagged, rucked in great folds east to west. Its tattered hem fled out into the Atlantic, carving islands into the grey ocean. Its weft tore open by deep sea locks running far into its mountainous interior. These were old rocks, some of the oldest on the planet. They had been ground down and eroded, hammered into a hard and unyielding landscape. His father had always told him that the Gales had been shaped by their landscape, that they thought differently. Their culture of kinship, of hospitality, their unbreakable connection to the land and a love of nature ran through them like a watermark, as did the need to safeguard and defend their meagre resources. Over centuries, this had bred and fostered the dichotomies of self-reliance and mutual dependence, hospitality and suspicion, generosity and parsimoniousness, affability and bellicosity, the open hand and the closed fist. Some saw this as volatile and threatening, but his father had always refuted that, seeing it instead as vital and life-affirming. He had often looked out across the narrow stretch of water between Antrim and the Gallic Republic and wondered what life was really like there. Could it be so bad? But any wish to visit had been tempered with a well-honed desire to stay alive. Hadn't his grandfather escaped all of that by leaving? Why would he go back? His father had rarely talked about clan matters, but he had told him tales of his cousin Duncan. He had been chief of the clan for many decades, a distant, near-legendary figure, he had seemed a fiction, a convenient vehicle for cautionary tales or showboating glamour. But the family had chosen to leave all of that behind, trusting to the few short miles of sea to insulate them from the Republic and its dangerous ways. How much of what he had heard on his father's knee was true and how much of it was misty-eyed bullshit, he was about to find out. Chapter 3. Lift and Carry even at the slower pace, it wasn't long before the Isle of Gear came into view off the port bow. It was flat and smaller than he had imagined. A cluster of wind turbines crowded its only hill. Unsurprisingly, there were no lights showing the length of the coast here. Anyone foolish enough to show lights would doubtless be on the receiving end of unwelcome visitors. But the land looked rich and well-kept. He hadn't expected that. After another hour of hard pounding, a rocky promontory jutted out from the coast, shielding the mouth of a long sea loch. Breege said it was Ardpatrick Point, the entrance to Westlock Tarbot, the gateway to the crossing place. As Nin turned the boat into the long and narrow loch, all eyes scoured the shoreline for unwelcome watchers. It was still early, not much past six, and the lightning thread of dawn was rising behind the low ridge of Kintyre to the east. To the north, the sharper hills of Knapdale marched up the loch to their left, disappearing into a soggy mist that clung to their pine-clad slopes. Nin slowed the boat, steering it into the middle of the channel, as if charting an imaginary tightrope leading from the sea to the loch head. They passed a shuttered and dark building on their left with a few boats moored outside. The loch had narrowed at this point and the shore was only 150 yards away, no more. A door suddenly swung open and a dark figure stepped onto the jetty and stared at them. Gillespie froze. Was that a gun? Kirsty stood up quickly and waved an arm, calling in a low but caring voice. Greetings from Dunderav. The figure said nothing but waved them on before returning inside and pulling the door closed. Kirsty turned to Gillespie, as if guessing his thoughts. We and the McAllisters go way back. When you're a small clan sandwiched between such neighbours as we have... 
You do well to have firm friendships. Gillespie shivered and looked ahead at the brightening sky revealed their destination. As they approached the head of the loch, there were more buildings and obvious signs of habitation. Fields with horses and small black cattle surrounding the doughty whitewashed houses, most of which had solar panels clamped to their roofs and wind turbines standing sentry nearby. Kirsty gave her orders. OK, you all know the routine. When we get to the jetty, leave the talking to me. I don't want any trouble kicking off, and that means you, Jamie, and you, Rat. Gillespie, keep your mouth shut. I don't want to have to be answering any unnecessary questions. There was a harbour at the end of the loch, with a series of pontoons jutting out into the dark water. There were a few bigger boats, some of which looked like they could happily cruise from ocean to ocean, and plenty of small ones, many ramshackle and down at heel. Nin steered into a space and gently rubbed up against the mooring. After so long sat in the boat, much of it in freezing seawater, Gillespie was glad to be able to get out and stretch his legs. They were stiff and recalcitrant, and he swayed slightly as he helped the crew unload their gear onto the dock. From the shipping container that served as the harbour master's office came four men, one armed with a tablet and the rest with an assortment of weaponry. Gillespie toyed briefly with the idea of asking them to help him, to rescue him. But now that he was in the Republic, his clansmen were the only friends he had. The man with the tablet turned to Kirsty and said, That didn't take you very long now, did it? Will you be wanting the lift and carry service again? Uh, yes, thanks, Duncan. Just a short trip, Kirsty mumbled. And yes, lift and carry would be great, thanks. Okay, well, that'll be 50 coin for the boat and five for each of you, so a total of 80 coin, please, said Duncan, punching the numbers into his tablet. His forehead was smooth and his brown eyes peered out at them under curiously fine brows. Now, he said, leaning close to Kirsty and speaking in a conspiratorial whisper that Gillespie could only just hear. I don't imagine you know anything about a little incident out in the strait last night. We've heard that some troublemakers shot up a kingdom patrol boat. Very unwise. I gather that Lord Lamont is keeping an eye out for them, and if it was me, I'd want to avoid that eye, if at all possible. Raising one of his delicate eyebrows, he gave Kirsty a knowing look before pursing his lips and returning his gaze to the screen of his tablet. Uh, we don't know anything about that, Kirsty lied. We've come down from the north of Jura. Duncan leant in closer yet, pulling her so close the flecks of his spit shone on her cheek. Aye, well, you would be wise to make yourself scarce. While Lament has no friends here, we have to sit and look at him day in, day out, and I can assure you, I don't want him sticking a red-hot poker up my arse any more than you do. Duncan jerked his head back, releasing her arm. Kirsty nodded, rummaging around in her inner pocket, and took out her phone. She held it close to Duncan's tablet and swiped the transfer over to him. And keep the change, she muttered, before turning on her heel and heading back to the others. The boat was unceremoniously picked up and put on a trailer attached to the back of a big 4 by 4 at the end of the jetty. Waving Duncan off, they all clambered into the back and were soon bouncing very slowly down the rusted and torn track that led to the ancient harbour of Tarbot. As they drove, Gillespie realised that the isthmus between the two coasts was very narrow, barely a mile wide. It was only this sliver of rock and earth that stopped the long peninsula of Kintyre from being an island. As they approached Tarbot, Gillespie saw the church first, crowned with its distinctive steeple. 
The houses of Tarbot were clustered around a tight, sheltered anchorage. Some of the buildings had been painted in bright colours, bringing some cheer to the otherwise gloomy stone and hull that stood around the harbour side. The brightest was the unlikely primrose yellow of the Boar's Head Inn. A tall building, its upper storey windows with dark sockets punched through the facade. Below them, a deep bow window spilled into the road and looked out over the water. Gillespie's stomach was growling. He hadn't eaten anything since lunch the previous day. He felt weak and feeble. The adrenaline of the journey was fading. Turning to Kirsty, he pointed at the rough-looking door of the inn and raised a questioning eyebrow. Can we get something to eat? I'm starving. Kirsty first looked at her watch before scanning the still and silent town. She nodded. Jamie, we need fuel. Can you take the boat round and fill her up? Rat, I want you to keep an eye out across the water in case of any unwelcome visitors. Nin, Breach, I want you to come with me and Gillespie to get some food and coffee before we head up the lock. RV, back here in 15. They all helped shoulder the boat from the trailer into the water. Jamie immediately jumped in and started up the engine, puttering across the harbour to the fuel store that was dimly illuminated on the other side. The rat trudged up the quay with a keen eye out of the harbour mouth and across the lock. Kirsty mounted the steps to the battered door of the inn. Turning the thick ring of the handle, she pushed it open, revealing a passage beyond. They followed her a few feet before pushing past a felted wool curtain, exchanging the cold dark of the hall for a warm and inviting saloon. The room was quiet, unsurprising given the hour. A huge fireplace at one end held a hearth filled with ashes from the previous night's fire. A clod of peat still burned, dull red at its heart. The fireback had the head of a boar embossed across it, its tusks long and sharp. Nin gestured for them to take a seat while he went to the bar where a man was watching. Gillespie pulled up the stool nearest the fire and sat, hoping to quell the swoop and swirl of the sea. Brood and Kirsty sat opposite and rubbed their hands, not ready yet to shed any of their layers of clothing. The man at the bar unfolded his arms and turned to Nin with a bleary smile. It seemed they knew each other, and Nin reciprocated with a dodge of his shoulders and a pointing finger and a wide grin. Within a few minutes, Nin returned with a tray of steaming coffee and some bread rolls stuffed with cheese and ham. Gillespie could hardly restrain himself, and he wolfed down a roll while scorching his tongue with the bitter black liquid. His stomach turned cartwheels at these riches, and he briefly wondered if he was going to be able to keep them down. Stuffing a few rolls in her pockets for Ian, the rat, and Jamie, Kirsty wrestled with the lids of the coffee cups, swearing hard at the scalding splashes that inevitably spattered her hands. Successful at last, she led the way out of the saloon, pushing past the curtain and out into the morning light. Jamie had already finished filling the boat's tank, and he was waiting alongside the quay. The rat came back down the harbour wall, grabbing a roll and coffee from Kirsty on the way. They clambered aboard and stowed the gear while the rat swept the harbour looking for signs of life. There were none. Tarbot slept. Nin helmed the boat through the moorings out of the sheltered bay and into Loch Fine. The lock was wide at this point. To the south it funnelled outwards into Kilbrannan Sound and the Clyde, away from the Republic and into Kingdom waters. To the north, its long, silvery finger pointed deep into Argyle, towards their destination at the head of the loch. Immediately opposite were the low, thickly wooded hills. Pulling on Gillespie's elbow, Breed pointed, Over there is Cowell. And you see there, just to the right of that hill, Gillespie stared out across the water at a castle, half hidden by trees, a short walk from the shore. That's what we're trying to avoid. Castle Ascog. 
the seat of Clan Lament and the home of their chief, John Lament of the Sorrows. People here know him as the Lamentation, although don't ever call that to his face, not unless you want yours peeled from you. He is a cruel and powerful man. Gillespie shuddered, the knot in his stomach tightening. Chapter 4. The Lamentation John Lament wrinkled his nose in thought. He turned from the window and focused on the imposing partner's desk that stretched out before him, its acres of green leather disappearing between multifarious papers and the double screen of his computer. The cursor winked impatiently, keen to be off. Sighing, he rubbed his eyes and turned his attention to the demanding pixels. In his position as warden of the Clyde, he'd already fired off messages to Westminster and Edinburgh, his ill temper rising with each sentence that he'd had to write, explaining the attack on the patrol boat. Since being roused from his bed with the news, he had written to the families of the three dead crewmen and had ordered flowers to be sent to the other two in hospital. The media was going to have a field day. The phone on his desk rang, sharp and demanding. Grabbing the receiver, he heard the voice of Alan Stewart on the line. Your Lordship, I thought you'd want to know that we've located a suspect for the patrol boat incident. Really? That was quick. Who and where are they? If your lordship looks out of the west window of his study, he may see the dubious-looking crew making their way up the lock. Our man in Tarbot told me they came in this morning from the west. In a boat like that, they could have easily made it from the incident in the time. I believe that the helm is Ninian McNaughton, a notorious layabout. Hmm, I wonder what a small band of McNaughtons could be doing so far from home, and why would they attack one of His Majesty's patrol boats? Very unwise, I would have thought and at this time, most of all, with Duncan about to croak his last. Poor old Duncan, he used to be ever so useful. The stone in the Callan Moore's shoe, I called him. Still, we can't tolerate such blatant acts, can we? Hmm, where would it end? Shall I arrest them? asked Stuart. No, I think not, at least not yet. This fits perfectly with my plans. Let them go for now, we'll deal with them soon enough. With that, he hung up the phone to consider his next move, the tip of his tongue moistening his lips, the thin crease pulled taut with concentration. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Baston. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production. (laughs) 